The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I am truly honored to welcome my guest, Dr. Annalise Orlek. She is a professor of history at Dartmouth College. She is the author of five books. She is widely recognized for her writing on women, politics, immigration, activism. She is a labor historian. Her latest book that we're going to be discussing today is titled, We Are All Fast Food Workers Now, The Global Uprising Against Poverty Wages. Welcome, Dr. Orlick. It's an honor to have you with me. Thank you, Melinda. It's an honor to be on the show. Well, I want to start out by saying that I think this is probably one of the most important books for all of us to be giving as gifts over the holiday season and to be sharing with our families around tables where we come together and talk about the deeper meaning of our food system and the importance of those who labor to put the food on our plates. I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about why you chose to write about this book and who you wrote it for. I wrote this book, I think, for a variety of audiences, but I think uh, for those of us who, in the last 30 years, have been able to see less and less about where our food comes from, also where our clothing comes from and many other products. It's not only food that I write about, but for this show, I think food is really key. Very few people are lucky enough to know where and under what conditions their food is produced. And so that was part of what I wanted to do, was to do what this new labor movement I write about in this book is doing, which is try to make the invisible visible. Mm -hmm. In preparing for this interview, I have heard you interviewed elsewhere, and you speak about the importance of coming together, of forming labor unions. But there's one story you tell about a worker who had worked for McDonald's and Boy, was the curtain opened up about McDonald's for me. I had no idea that they employed 1.9 million people worldwide. They were the second largest global employer. But there was a gentleman who worked for McDonald's, and he didn't really understand the full global movement until he went to Brazil and he saw other McDonald's workers from different parts of the world, and they all had the remarkable same burn marks on their arms. Tell me about that experience. Yeah, it it, it was quite remarkable for Blue. The man you're talking about is a young man in his late 20s named Blue Rainier, and he was an Arby's worker, moved to Tampa for a better life, ended up a McDonald's worker, and even after he was promoted to manager, he was only making, I think, about $9 an hour, and he sometimes found himself sleeping in bus stations because he didn't, even as a manager, he didn't earn enough to support himself. And so he became active, and as an activist, 
he was invited, he opened his mail one day, a big surprise, and got a letter from the Federal Senate of Brazil, their Human Rights Commission. And they said McDonald's was the second largest employer in their country, and workers at McDonald's had convinced, and through their union, had convinced the Senate that McDonald's was driving down wages and labor conditions for workers across Brazil. And because it's the second largest private employer in the world, the Brazil Senate wanted to find out if they were causing similar deterioration of wages and labor conditions around the world. As an activist in the U.S., Blue was invited, and he went there, and he met workers from the Philippines, from Japan, from Brazil, from Korea. And he met this one guy from Japan, and he said the story was his story. It was chilling. The guy rolled up his sleeve, and he showed Blue these burns on his arm. And then Blue rolled up his sleeve, and the burns were in exactly the same places. And then this guy, Benedict Murillo from Manila in the Philippines, rolled up his sleeve, and his burns were exactly in the same places. And they had literally been branded by their labor at McDonald's because the architecture of the workplace is the same everywhere. And the 90-second turnaround time, you know, from the time the person makes their order until the time the worker is supposed to give it to them, is so fast that... People are constantly burning themselves on the grill. And so these workers had literally been branded. And for him, he said that was revelatory. He called them McBrothers, and he realized that, that there was a global working class, and it wasn't the kind that had been talked about in the past. It was these workers who work for these transnational corporations literally have the same bosses around the world. And so Blue has been part of these remarkable global walkouts that have taken place in 40 countries on all six continents, hundreds of cities where workers at McDonald's have staged these one-day walkouts to illustrate what's going on. You know, I thought it was interesting that there's even a definition for McJob in Webster's and the Oxford English Dictionary. It's essentially low-paid work, low satisfaction, and few prospects for advancement, usually part-time or temporary labor. So here we have a definition, and I juxtapose the conditions that you write about in your book to the images that we see of McDonald's, right? The ads about everything being happy, the McTeacher mm -hmm. nights that occur. Of course, I've been fighting that movement because I don't think it's right for teachers to have to go and work behind a McDonald's counter to make a few extra dollars for their schools. But we see how McDonald's has its hands in so many ways, making it appear to be good and nice. And then you read your book and you find out about the labor abuses, even wage theft going on, both at McDonald's and at Walmart, which is the largest employer. Yes, wage theft is, is endemic, and Trump's first nominee for Secretary of Labor, Andrew Puzder, was found by California courts and California labor relations officials to have robbed his employees of $20 million in California alone. So this gives you a sense of the scale of this wage theft. And I talked to McDonald's managers who said that they were pressured to have their workers clock out at the end, supposed end of a workday, and then when they were off the clock, clean the grills, close up the place, deal with getting ready for the next shift, all without pay, right? And these are workers who are already not being paid enough to earn a living, but, you know, by a corporation that is it is so powerful around the world, it is more powerful than certain countries. Right. So, and Walmart, more than any, right? Walmart is the number one private employer in the world, 
And, you know, not only do one in four American grocery dollars go get spent in a Walmart, but it's the second largest grocer in Britain, and it's the second largest in Mexico, and it's one of the largest retail chains in China. I mean, these are global these are global powers that are denying their workers the most basic sorts of rights. And part of it is what you talked about before. Suddenly, that's the title of the book, We're All Fast Food Workers Now. Suddenly, everybody is, is a contract worker. Nobody's an employee. Everybody's part-time. Nobody is covered by labor laws. I mean, that's what has happened in the last 30 years that, that I, I wanted people to see and was one of the reasons why I wrote this book. Mm-hmm. And if we had something like universal health care, where you didn't have to depend on a full-time job with a steady employer to access health care, it might be more comfortable or easier to be a contract worker. But if you're a freelancer or a contract worker with this new gig economy, then we really need to look at where are we going to get our retirement and a steady income and access to the health care that we all need. Healthcare is a key issue, but so too is coverage under labor laws. So contract workers are not covered under labor laws passed during the New Deal era, you know, 75, 80 years ago. Mm-hmm. So they're not entitled to overtime. They're not entitled to maximum hours protections. They're often not entitled to minimum wage, depending on the, the standards. And in food workers, often the minimum wage for food workers is, is horribly low for in restaurants in particular. So there's a lot that people lose by not being full-time workers. Yeah, contribution to Social Security is another thing, these pensions. So this changed environment, the so-called gig economy, is not this plucky, cheerful little thing where everybody gets to be free from the man, as the ads on the New York subway recently put it. It's a situation where everybody gets to be exploited and have their wages stolen and not get what should have been legal labor protections, laws passed, as I said, decades ago. Mm -hmm. You know what I love about your book, Dr. Orlick, is that it is a historical account of what has happened to labor, and it describes the history and present day with regard to labor rights and movements. But what I really love about it is you make the history come alive by telling people's stories. And I want to I want to talk about Walmart for a moment because one of the workers that you highlight in the book has been living in her car for two years. She's been part of the Our Walmart movement. You've got multiple stories about worker abuse in Walmart. But I think that this drive for, oh, we're going to get cheap goods. We shop there because we think we're getting a really good deal. And then you find out that the people working there are abused. Also, they experience wage theft. There was a story of not only the woman who was living in her car for two years, but the woman who had a child that was dying of cancer, and she was denied by her manager the ability to go be with that child. And these are the kinds of things that inspired people to join the movement. What's interesting about the staff in Walmart is a lot of them really did not start out in any kind of political position. You know, the Fight for 15 movement and the McDonald's workers, a lot of those folks see themselves as the grandchildren of the civil rights movement. And a lot of the young African-American workers see themselves carrying on that banner. In the Walmart, the Walmart employees were often, as uh, one organizer I spoke to who was moved to join the movement by seeing her 
co-worker denied the right to stay with her dying child when she was sick. Evelyn Cruz put it, she said they engage in predatory hiring, by which she meant they hire people who are so desperate they really can't afford to lose their jobs. Single moms, ex-cons, disabled people, people who really... For whom this is for whom this is everything, and for many of them, they really believed in the Walmart ideal, right, and the Walmart family, and all that rhetoric. And as one of them, Denise Barlage, who I talk about in this book, explained to me, said we finally decided that we were going to make that rhetoric of family real. Walmart's rhetoric of family, she said, was a lie. You had hungry workers, right? People couldn't afford enough to eat. And so they started by sharing their lunches with one another so that their fellow workers would not go hungry. That's the kind of thing that galvanized them and made them political. And that's how they organized Our Walmart, which means Organization United for Respect at Walmart. Mm -hmm. And how many consumers do you think know that the employees of Walmart make so little that they have to rely on taxpayer subsidies through the what we used to call food stamps, but the SNAP program and other sort of assistance programs. Walmart is really making a profit off the taxpayer's back because we are subsidizing people's meals. Walmart is, Amazon is, McDonald's is. That is true. Every Walmart, the Democratic House Labor Committee did a study a few years back and found that every Walmart that opens up costs taxpayers more than a million dollars a year in subsidies. And so they are absolutely, they're subsidizing poverty, starvation wages with tax dollars. And Bernie Sanders just introduced a bill into Congress the other day that he calls the Jeff Bezos bill that would require these mega corporations, which make such huge profits, not to subsidize their wages with taxpayer dollars, but in fact to, to pay their employees enough that they don't need food stamps and Medicaid. Exactly. I need to take one break and remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are speaking with Dr. Annalise Orlick. She is a professor at Dartmouth College, and she is the author of the book we're speaking about titled, We Are All Fast Food Workers Now, The Global Uprising Against Poverty Wages. I want to also talk about this idea that people have of the person who's homeless, the person who's living in their car, the person who is dependent upon food aid, in that maybe they are seen as lazy or not working. You know, you hear that line, oh, just go get a job. It is really important for the public to understand, for citizens to understand, that the individuals who are getting aid and who are living in their cars are many times working two or three jobs and still cannot make ends meet. I think that, that increasingly people are beginning to understand that, which is why, for example, the teacher strikes got so much sympathy and why the aspiration of the fast food workers for a $15 minimum wage, which was seen as crazy when they started in 2012, is now fast-becoming policy across the country, and that will continue, I think, to, to develop. And I think the reason for that is because, at last check, more than half of American working people make $30,000 a year or less. That's poverty wages, and that's a direct result of the decline of full-time employment and the rise of the gig economy and of contract labor. So I think increasingly, as in the Great Depression, American workers are starting to understand that our low unemployment rates don't really mean anything if people need two and three jobs to exactly. live. And there is not a county in this country 
where people, anyone can rent an apartment for a uh, two-bedroom apartment for minimum wage. Exactly. There's, there's absolutely no place. And so, you know, this idea that the, the minimum wage, you know, if we raise it would hurt business is, is just ridiculous. Right. You had mentioned Fight for 15. Do you want to just explain what that is for our listeners who might not be aware of it? Yeah. In 2012, the two movements we've been talking about got started, our Walmart and Fight for 15. And both of those movements began to try to publicize the fact that people didn't have enough. Uh, they were working full-time and didn't have enough to live on. And they both started right around Thanksgiving 2012. In fact, the day after, because the day after is Black Friday, the biggest shopping day of the year in the United States. And it's also one of the biggest days of the year in fast food places, because after everybody did all their cooking and they, you know, they just don't want to do that anymore, they're tired cleaning up the family dinner, and so they go out to fast food places. And the fast food workers wanted consumers to see that after this day where we celebrate overconsumption and eating until you fall asleep, that there were a lot of workers in this country who not only didn't have enough to feed their families, they didn't have enough to feed themselves. The percentage of restaurant workers who are hungry is extremely high in this country. So so the movement began, and they said, look, $15 is the absolute minimum as an hourly wage that anybody can live on in this country. And so they set a goal of attaining that wage. Now, that was really ambitious because the federal minimum wage is seven twenty-five. So you were talking about more than doubling the federal minimum wage. And what has happened is that in the biggest labor markets in this country, in the states of New York and California, and in hundreds of cities across the country, that has become a reality. And the $15 wage is widely accepted now. So you've got a bunch of fast food workers, some of the most disfranchised, lowest paid workers in the country started this movement and, and these strikes every Labor Day and these one-day strikes to reveal McDonald's for what it really is. And they have changed this country. Mm-hmm. They have absolutely changed this country. And I, the situation is still very dire for low-wage workers now, but I, I think they should get credit for a lot of their victories, which have been significant. I totally agree. And as many stories that are in this book that are so troubling, you also give us hope in this idea of all we really need to do is talk to each other, listen to each other's stories, and come together, unionize, form in solidarity, and recognize the strength we have in numbers to change the system. Before we go back to talking more about what we can do as citizens, I want to talk about agriculture, because you've got a fabulous section in this book about migrant labor, farm labor slavery. You talk about the coalition of Immokalee workers down in Florida, the sweatshop dairies in Vermont. I was amazed to read about Ben and Jerry's, right? And Cabot Dairy. I mean, Cabot usually has a stand at our expo of dietitians, and the cheese is so good. And And then you read about the story behind the cheese and the story behind the Cherry Garcia ice cream. Let's talk about sweatshop dairies in Vermont. Okay. So most of the dairy workers in Vermont come from Chiapas and uh, Tabasco, and they're folks often who've graduated from high school and would really like to go to college, but they don't have the money. So they come here hoping you know, to raise some money, send something back for their families. And the employment on Vermont dairies 
was under dire conditions, people being housed in unheated barns and uninsulated school buses through a Vermont winter, which is a serious winter where, you know, there are many days when it's down in double digits below zero. And they heard about the Immokalee Workers Fair Food Program, which has been recognized around the world, even by the United Nations, as a model. And this program said, look, local farmers don't necessarily have enough to pay their workers more and to create better living conditions for them, because in a time of corporate farming and falling prices, many farmers are really stretched thin. So we have an idea. We're going to hit the top of the supply chain, the big buyers. And the Immokalee workers hit Walmart, and they hit Taco Bell, and they hit the, the people who bought the most tomatoes and got them to agree to pay a penny more a pound in order to raise workers' wages, to, to farms that raised their wages, that improved their housing, and that allowed them to unionize and had a zero-tolerance policy for sexual violence. And so a young man by the name of Enrique Balcazar, who was just in his early 20s at this point, he'd come to Vermont at 16, heard about this program, traveled to Florida, and said, you know what, I'm going to apply this to Vermont's dairies. And he did. And Ben and & Jerry's is, and Cabot are the big buyers of Vermont milk and cream. And so Ben & Jerry's, as he said in beginning the campaign, they, they're famous for being a socially conscious brand. Yeah. Uh, now, by this point, Ben & Jerry, the original hippie owners, were no longer owners. They had sold out to Unilever, a global food corporation. And what the migrant justice workers did is they pressed Ben and Jerry's. They did truth tours like the Immokalee workers. They traveled around the country appearing in front of Ben and Jerry's stores and telling people the conditions they worked under. And it took several years. But in the fall of 2017, Ben and Jerry finally signed on so that workers in Vermont now have Worker-led inspections, that's really key to the Immokalee workers' plan, right? Workers go in to inspect workplaces for safety and to see if there's any kind of sexual violence and if workers are being harassed for organizing. They get paid a little bit more because Ben & Jerry's is paying farmers a little bit more for their milk and cream if they run a, a fair operation. And as a result, the conditions for Vermont dairy workers they now have, which is not a lot, but is a lot for them, $10 an hour. They're guaranteed to sleep in beds in insulated conditions to be free of sexual violence and to have a safe farm workplace because their movement began when a young worker, Jose Santos Ortiz, was killed by a faulty piece of machinery. And so they just want to guarantee that, that farmers make sure that these workplaces are are safe. And it's it's a remarkable story. It's a, it's a wonderful victory. Absolutely. And you tell many stories like that. It can be a model for anyone who wants to gain strength in numbers and have a game plan for improving our food system and other industrial work sites. I want to give you a chance to bring forth anything in the book that you really want our listeners to know about? Well, I think one other piece of the book, there are a couple of other pieces in terms of food that I think are worth talking about. One is the organizing by the transnational indigenous networks of migrant berry pickers. Now, berries are the leading edge of the produce market. They made Walmart rich. They're the fastest growing global sector in produce, and and they're profit makers. Berries sell for a lot of money, and yet the workers in many parts of the Pacific Coast from San Quentin from Baja, California, all the way to British Columbia, in Morocco, and Spain, and many parts of the world 
were earning very, very little. In Baja California, as late as 2015, they were getting $6 a day, no clean water to drink, living in horrendous housing, being tased in the fields for attempting to organize. And by the way, that happened across the border in California as well. And they began to organize, and it was really fascinating. They organized two independent unions, brand new, Familias Unidas por Justicia, the Families United for Justice in British Columbia, that unionized the Sukuma blueberry farms. There was a long-time boycott of Sukuma that is no longer necessary because Sukuma, after years, finally recognized their union. They fought hard to break it first, but in the end, they did recognize a union among their workers. And on the southern side of the border, as well, a union which is independent of some of the big old corrupt Mexican unions, which nearly doubled the wages of workers in Baja California, got them clean water, and forced the berry companies to contribute to their Social Security, to their pensions. They, had, they shut down the Pan American Highway between Baja California and California, the United States. To do it, 50,000 people went on strike. The strike lasted for quite a long time. They burned berry fields. It was a huge labor uprising that people learned very little about. Now they have a new goal, and that goal is to continue a boycott on Driscoll's berries that started in the course of that strike, not because Driscoll's is the very worst, but because Driscoll's is by far the biggest. And as a global near monopoly on berries, they have the possibility of improving conditions throughout the industry, from from Oaxaca all the way up into Canada and around the world. And so I wanted to highlight that because that's something that's still going on right now. Mm-hmm. You also have stories of land grabs. You also discuss the Green Revolution and the myths behind that. We don't have time to get into all of that, but you do have stories from all over the world that I find to be extremely empowering and hopeful. What do you want our listeners to do? What I want listeners to do is take that extra moment, and it's hard, to look behind the labels of what they buy, to try to buy local in terms of berries when they can, to take a moment, maybe one moment, to go to the Bangladesh Fire and Building Safety Accord website and see which companies have signed the Safety Accord, which is like the Fair Food Program, but for clothing. And there's plenty of good products that we can purchase, but we do need to pay attention and we do need to understand the high cost of low cost. That's right, the high cost of low cost. In the prologue of your book, you say, I worried that I was going to be able to weave everything together to include all of these stories. You say, I felt a gnawing sense of worry as I wondered how I would tie together and make sense of all that I was seeing and hearing. Personally, I think you did a beautiful job. And I really can't recommend this book enough to our listeners. We just have a minute. And there are so many chapters and so many questions that I have here. But where do people start to learn about the food behind their plates? You mentioned a couple of places to look. Anything else? I think to the extent that you can buy locally, that's great. If you're buying from a global corporation, make sure it's one of those that has a clean supply chain. And you can do that, you know, you can do that on the web. You can often do that. I, I think you should encourage your local co-ops, as I have, to try to have a food justice labeling program. And I think that's becoming more common around the country. 
So I think all of those ways. And in the aftermath of Aretha Franklin's death, I want to quote, I want to close with the one word I heard most often from workers from the Philippines to the Walmart workers to the fast food workers, and that was respect. That's all they want. They said the higher wages matter. A lot of stuff matters, but they had one word to say for what they want changed its respect, and so I would close with that. I think that's beautiful. And as we come together with our families and we sit down and enjoy delicious food, it would be wonderful for us all to offer thanks for the people who toiled to put that food on our plates. So in closing, I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Most of all, I want to thank my guest, Dr. Annalise Orlick. She is the author of We Are All Fast Food Workers Now, The Global Uprising Against Poverty Wages. And I will make sure to have a link so that our listeners can purchase your book and learn more about the wonderful work that you're doing. Thank you so much. Thank you so much.